Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being so much more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 154, my friends, and because it's getting to be Halloween time and I like to do things that are timely, This episode is all about the practice of alchemy. Alchemy is the art and science of transforming base metals into gold or silver. It's also about creating healing potions that can heal any disease. And both Henry VIII and Elizabeth I supported and patronized alchemists. Perhaps the most famous alchemist of the period is John Dee. He is the famous scientist who had both the largest private library in Europe and a conjuring table. It's hard for us with our post-enlightenment minds to square these two sides of people. How can you be a scientist who also has a conjuring table? How can you be a canon or a priest who also reads tarot cards? How can you have this scientist who is also what we would call an occultist. But it's so, so important to remember this is before the scientific revolution. This is right when people are on the verge of discovering science, of making all of these discoveries that we now take for granted, gravity, right? This is right when Copernicus is finally putting it out there that the sun does not actually go around the earth. Um, And I I did do an episode on Tudor astronomy, if you want to hear more about that, I'll uh, put it in the show notes. But, you know, in our modern minds, it's impossible to be both a scientist and someone who would spend a lot of time finding the Philosopher's Stone. It's really easy for us to look down at people who did search for the Philosopher's Stone or the Elixir of Life and to think that we're so much smarter than they were. And, you know, this is like my own (laughs) insert opinion piece here. Um, Maybe in some ways we've gone too far. Look at this constant infighting between science and religion in terms of things like evolution. And, you know, it might not be a bad thing to bring back some of the mystery and, and the faith into some of the hard science 
but that's just my opinion, right? And I'm not a scientist, so who cares? <laughs> so let's move on and talk about alchemy, shall we? One of the things that makes alchemy different than simply metallurgy is that, and I think it's important to remember this, this idea that alchemists saw themselves as the keepers and inheritors of sacred knowledge. This knowledge wasn't just available to anyone. It was kind of secret knowledge, who they shared this knowledge with and how they chose to pass the knowledge on to the future. This was super important. There's a a sacredness to practicing alchemy that we don't see in other sciences. And even then, when books were written, many of them were put into codes so that only someone who has dedicated their lives to understanding alchemy would be able to decipher it. There's this sacred element that we don't see in other sciences. Often, alchemy was practiced by monks or other religious people. But it wasn't just monks who studied alchemy. It could be courtiers, merchants, doctors. By the Elizabethan period, in addition to the most famous John Dee, lots of noble men and women were practicing alchemy, including Mary Sidney Herbert, Countess of Pembroke, sister of Philip Sidney. She had an alchemical laboratory in Wilton House, and her lab assistant was called Adrian Gilbert. He was the half-brother to Sir Walter Raleigh. So the reach of alchemy went very, very far. But alchemy also had a long history. By the Tudor period, the art of practicing alchemy was at least 14 centuries old. The very first alchemical text that we have was written in Egypt in the first century AD with a title that translates to natural and secret things. There were alchemists working in Egypt, writing out their texts throughout this period. One recipe from the third century calls for the distillation of eggs in order to produce a substance that turns silver into a gold color. These early alchemical texts are mystical, and they often discuss how alchemy is the practical side of the religious work that we do to purify our souls to eventually join the divine in heaven. And so it's this metaphor, we're working on our souls so that we can you know, be ready to join whatever comes after life and be part of this, this spiritual union with the divine. And then here on earth, we work on turning impure metals into gold, which of course is the purest metal around. So the practice of alchemy then spread throughout the Byzantine Empire. People practiced in Byzantium, as well as in Syria and Alexandria. When the Arabs began to conquer Egypt and the Middle East, they would have discovered some of the ancient Hellenistic texts, including the alchemical ones. So it's interesting that for Europe, much of the alchemical knowledge came through Arab translations of original Greek texts. The first known Latin European translation of an alchemical text was from a fellow called Robert of Chester. He was active in the 1140s. He was a mathematician. He was a scientist. And Though he was from Chester, he studied in Barcelona and was the archdeacon of Pamplona. 
Robert is most famous for being the first Westerner to translate the Quran into Latin, and his translations also introduced Western Europe to Arabic algebra. He also completed the first Latin translation of an alchemical book. It was called The Book of the Composition of Alchemy, which tells a story of how a Christian monk, Morenus, taught alchemy to the Umayyad prince Khalid ibn Yazid in Damascus. Around the 7th century is also when we see the Emerald Tablet. Sounds pretty awesome. A tablet supposedly found in a vault below a statue of Hermes on a corpse who was sat on a golden throne. This tablet apparently has the secret of transmutation, and none other than Isaac Newton, almost 900 years later, had a translation from the original Arabic into his papers. One of the verses of the tablet, when it's translated, says, "'Tis true without lying, certain and most true. That which is below is like that which is above." And that which is above is like that which is below, to do the miracle of only one thing. And as all things have been and arose from one by the mediation of one, so all things have their birth from this one thing by adaptation. So that's an interesting thought on what the practice of alchemy was all about. By the late Middle Ages, we start to see alchemy flourishing in England. One of the earliest English alchemists was Roger Bacon. He lived in the 13th century. He was one of the first scientists to talk about experimenting as a way to learn what we would now call the scientific method. He found and translated the Secreta Secretorum, the secret of secrets, formed as a letter from Aristotle to his pupil Alexander the Great. This was like a general how-to guide, like a self-help book, a how-to-live-your-best-life kind of guide, but it also contains in it several paragraphs on the secret of alchemy. So Bacon read this, and he thought, well, this is really interesting. I'm going to follow some of this advice. And a lot of it is just kind of really general advice, like you should sleep well and (laughs) you should get exercise. Um, But a couple of the things were ideas around alchemy for health. So this letter says that men could live longer if they ate healthier food and if they engaged in exercise. But the thing is, it was really difficult in real life situations to get that good food that balanced everything out. Like Nowadays, we just go to the supermarket and all year round, there's strawberries. and All year round, there's spinach and raspberries and lots of good stuff, right? Kale and quinoa all the time. They didn't have that in the Middle Ages. So, you know, how are you going to get this wonderful balanced diet in the middle of winter? Well, that's where alchemy came in. You could use alchemy to create medicines to reproduce some of that stuff that was in the good food. So the vitamins and food supplements that we take now could actually be seen as alchemy derived by Roger Bacon in the 13th century. So see, if you take a vitamin, you're actually sort of practicing alchemy. By 1329, the 17-year-old Edward III ordered a writ of aid for Thomas Carey appointed to bring to the king John Le Roi and Master William de Dolme, who are said to be able to make silver by alchemy. 
with the instruments and other things pertaining to their craft. By the end of the 14th century, alchemy seems to be such a part of culture that an alchemist even appears in the Canterbury Tales. This is the canon's yeoman's tale. It's possible that the inspiration from this came from a trial that was happening at the same time, and Chaucer would have known about this trial. It was a famous trial of a William de Brumley. He was a chaplain from Middlesex who was caught trying to sell four counterfeit coins to the master of the Royal Mint at the Tower of London. And he claims that he made these coins by the means of alchemy. The coins had been made by combining gold, silver, and other what he called medicines, and then mixing it all together with alchemy. And William had claimed that he was taught according to the doctrine of a canon of the King's Chapel at Windsor. So William had actually sold his alchemical metal to the mint before he had a history of doing this for the price of 18 shillings. But then after his second attempt, he had spent five weeks working on these coins. The attempt was unsuccessful and he was arrested along with all of his alchemical coins and they were all seized as evidence. So Chaucer saw this trial, had known about this trial, and that may have been the inspiration for the canon's yeoman's tale. The use of alchemy to create money is actually what led to a backlash against alchemists because people were worried that they were being ripped off. By 1403, Henry IV ordered that none from henceforth shall use to multiply gold or silver, not use the craft of multiplication, and if any, the same do and be therefore of a taint, that he incur the pain of felony in this case. But just a couple decades later, by the mid-15th century, alchemy was back. Henry VI gave special permission for some people to practice transmutation, which is making gold or silver. And one of the most popular books in England in the 15th century was a translation known as The Right Path of Alchemy. There are actually about 30 copies of this translation in Latin and 30 copies in English that still survive from this period. One of the interesting things about the text is it has eight pieces of advice for budding alchemists in it. So if you want to get into the alchemy world, here's some advice for you. One of them is not to try to chase after kings or very powerful people. This is for two reasons. It says that you should be wary of working for powerful people because first, if you commit yourself, you're going to have to deliver and they're going to want results. And if you can't give them results, they're going to be upset. You're going to be humiliated at best, maybe punished, who knows. But, you know, it's just really not worth it unless you're absolutely sure you can deliver. But if you do succeed, then you run into another problem, which is that they are not going to want to let you go. So you will become what they call a prisoner to your own success. In May of 1456, Henry VI granted a license to certain alchemists to practice, and this shed some light on who the people were who practiced alchemy throughout this time period. One of the men who was given permission to practice was actually a physician to the king. There's also a chancellor of Oxford University, several other doctors. Edward IV also licensed Henry Gray to attempt to transmute metals. Five years later, he gave a Richard Carter permission to practice his alchemical crafts at the manor of Woodstock. 
1475, he set up a royal commission on alchemy, which included none other than the Archbishop of York and George Neville, as well as lots of others. One of the most famous alchemists of this period was a Thomas Norton. He lived from 1433 to about 1514. One of the most famous alchemists of the period was a Thomas Norton. He lived from 1433 until about 1514, and he wrote The Ordinal of Alchemy in 1477. The book is in English with advice, comments, and instructions on how to do alchemy. It also contains some beautiful illustrations. George Ripley is another famous alchemist of this period. And if you've ever looked into alchemy, you've probably heard of the Ripley Scrolls, and it's named after George Ripley. So he was the canon of Bridlington Priory in Yorkshire, and he also wrote a text called The Compound of Alchemy. And he's remembered for this six-meter-long scroll, it's about 20 feet, the Ripley Scroll, named after him. It dates from about 1490, and it supposedly contains the secret to creating the Philosopher's Stone. In the first scene, the legendary Egyptian alchemist Hermes has a flask over a furnace and then presents a book about alchemy to Ripley. In the final scene, we see the creation of the Philosopher's Stone as three colored orbs, red, white, and black, combining to make the elixir of life. There's a beaming sun, which symbolizes gold, and a crescent moon to signify silver. It also has the words, you must make water of earth and earth of air and air of fire and fire of earth. The scrolls were copied well into the 17th century, and there are still 23 examples today. I'll put a picture of one in the show notes. The show notes will be at englandcast.com slash alchemy, A-L-C-H-E-M-Y, englandcast.com slash alchemy. By the reign of Elizabeth, alchemy was hugely in vogue with an emphasis on how to make gold. With a higher level of literacy among people, more learning, people were becoming more interested in alchemy and began doing experiments that would become the basis for what we would consider chemistry. One example is of Clement Draper. He spent more than 13 years in debtor's prison, and while he was there, he filled notebooks with information he got from fellow prisoners, from visitors, as well as books. And he learned all about medicine, mining, and chemistry. People would create their own journals and books with collections of recipes for everything from curing diseases to transmutation to cleaning clothing. And with the growth of publishers and printing presses, these books became easy enough for anyone to own. Draper tried experiments like dissolving mercury into aquafortis and then recording what happened. Even William Cecil got interested in alchemy. Thomas Charnock presented him with a book for the Queen about alchemy, perhaps hoping to become her own alchemist. But apparently Cecil liked it enough that he kept it in his own library. In 1564, a Cornelius de Lannoy from a well-to-do family in the Low Countries came to England and he proposed to manufacture gold using equipment and raw materials in the mint. After a year, he didn't have success, and he blamed the poor quality of glassware and pots that he was given. Then, a Swedish princess, Cecilia, she suddenly showed some interest in what he was doing, and Cecil and the Queen were worried that Delanoy was going to go off to Sweden, 
So he was confined to the tower in 1566 in order to force him to continue his experiments. He blamed evil men for interfering with his processes and the equipment and being rushed by Cecil and Elizabeth. By 1471, he was still in the tower, which we see in a letter written from his wife to Lester. And it's quite possible that he died there. So you see, he should not have ignored that piece of advice to not go after powerful people. Because everything that that said would happen, happened to him. So I don't know if he didn't read the book, or if he just got greedy and didn't care. But he should have followed that advice. Around this time, the great-grandson of the aforementioned Thomas Norton, who was now a member of the Somerset Gentry, he discovered the alchemical recipes supposedly written by George Ripley. And he wrote them all out in The Key of Alchemy in Latin, and he dedicated it to Elizabeth. This was supposedly meant to be used as a proposal for some kind of patronage, By the end of Elizabeth's reign in 1596, there's a surviving manuscript owned by Robert Garland listing texts that he had, including Bacon and George Ripley and others that were brand new. There's also recipes and notes of a process that were supposedly carried out at John Dee's lab. Alchemy was even involved in the exploration of the Americas. On Martin Frobisher's tours of Newfoundland, he found what he thought was gold ore, leading to an effort to fund more trips to bring back even more gold. And while the metallurgists couldn't find gold, alchemists were brought in to see whether or not they could make gold from what he had found. The person who was organizing and financing and raising the money, a Michael Locke, said that Frobisher, when he returned to London from the Arctic, had given him a black stone as the first object taken from the new land. Locke brought the samples of the stone to the royal assayer in the Tower of London. And he and two other experts all said that this was worthless, that it didn't have any gold in. So then Locke took the quote-unquote ore to an Italian alchemist living in London, Giovanni Battista Agnello, and he claimed that it did have gold in it. He assayed the ore three times and showed Locke small amounts of gold dust. When he was challenged as to why the other assayers didn't find gold, he replied, one must know how to flatter nature. So Locke then takes this one positive report, he ignores the negative ones, and he writes to the queen to tell her that there's this very encouraging result. And he uses this as a springboard to lobby investors to finance another voyage. And soon enough, gossip and rumors started to spread throughout the court and throughout all of London about the gold powder that Anginello was supposedly getting from the rock. So that takes us right up to the beginning of the 17th century. And that's when we start to see Francis Bacon and Isaac Newton. And soon enough, in the next 50 years or so, England would see the birth of the Enlightenment the study of alchemy would turn into chemistry, and men stopped searching for the philosopher's stone. That is, until a certain he who shall not be named was hunting it, and a boy wizard had to stop him only about 25 years ago. I'm not going to tell you what happened with that, because you probably know. Anyway, that's it for this week. If you want to know more about medieval and Tudor alchemy, there's a book by Guthrie Stewart called Alchemy in Medieval and Tudor England. There's also the work of Dr. Jennifer Rampling. 
She is awesome, and she has done several lectures. She studies the history of science with a particular emphasis on alchemy. And she's done a lecture at the Royal Society that's online on YouTube. Um, She's done a number of lectures. And I would also be remiss not to mention my fellow Agora Podcast Network colleague, Travis Dow, who has an entire podcast series on the history of alchemy. So I'll put links to all of that in the show notes at englandcast.com slash alchemy, englandcast.com slash A-L-C-H-E-M-Y. So you can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016-TESCO or join the free Tudor Learning Circle social network, the social network just for Tudor history at tutorlearningcircle.com. Thank you so much for listening. And now... As we end, I want to play for you a clip of a podcast series by Royfield Brown. Royfield is another fellow Agora member. He organized the Intelligent Speech Conference. He's really big in history podcasting. And one of his podcasts is called 10 American Presidents. And he just put together a really interesting episode, almost like a documentary on Reagan, which is totally timely as we come up on the 40th anniversary of the election of Ronald Reagan. So I'm just going to play you the trailer for that really quickly. And we're going to go out on that note. So check that out if you're interested. All right. Hey, thank you so much for listening. And I will be back in a couple of weeks. And we're going to finish up our tour of the Tudor home. Um, That's what we're going to do in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful Halloween. Don't get too scared. Don't eat too much candy. A little bit of candy, but not too much. All right. Thanks for listening. As America prepares its presidential election on November the 3rd, we look at the life of a president who 40 years ago was called a dangerous extremist, who wanted to put nuclear weapons in space and who proposed large tax and spending cuts hoping to destroy the power of Washington. You wouldn't get a uniform report of the scrubs. Why? Because I think you'd make a football player. I doubt Try it. Try it anyway. All right, if you insist. Now, wait a minute. What's your name? Kip. George Kip. Raised in the small towns of Illinois, he was the actor who changed America, helped bring down the Berlin Wall, and became a lion of the right. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Listen to part one of Ronald Reagan, from Illinois to California on 10 American Presidents, from Royfield Brown and the author of Reagan, American icon Ewan Morgan. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, a cast and wherever else you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 